Welcome to The Final Word, a Bible teaching ministry with pastor, teacher, and author Jim Andrews. The Final Word is grounded on the invincible conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches. And that is the last word. On this program, truth still matters. The Bible is in, Babel is out. The Final Word is funded by listeners like you. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about the program, please go to our website at thefinalwordradio.com. There you'll find archives so you can listen to any program you may have missed. Visit us on our social media platforms at The Final Word Radio and write us a note. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll provide other contact information at the end of the program, so have your pen ready. And now Jim Andrews continues his current study of God's Word. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us again on The Final Word. Before I launch today's exposition, I want to make our listening audience aware of some articles that I have written and tell you how to access them. If you will go to jimandrewsbooks.com, that's one word, jimandrewsbooks.com, you will find there information describing the books I have authored. One of them co-authored with my daughter. On top of that, on the same website, you'll see a tab that says Articles. You will discover there are some articles that I've produced over the years that you may find interesting and helpful. For example, my take on the demise of the culture wars and where I think we ought to go from here. Another article that appeared several years ago in a journal for biblical manhood and womanhood is entitled Boundaries Without Bonds. Another is a rebuttal of a tract that appeared several years back. The author attempted cleverly, but as I will show unsuccessfully, to persuade us that the Scriptures do not condemn homosexual practice. After all, that has all been a misunderstanding. I'm not a regular blogger, but when sometimes things pop up on my radar that I feel I would like to address in a thoughtful way, I will sometimes produce a longer article like some of these. So I'm just happy to share them with you for whatever benefit they may have. Now... Back to our current study. We continue our exposition of the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 7 today. In this chapter, the author returns after a tactical digression to this informative and crucial topic for his readers. It concerned the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus after the order of Melchizedek. Now, bear in mind the thing that he's trying to get across here. The overarching point is the absolute superiority of Jesus Christ in every respect to everything they've ever known. And that's the larger point for us, the magnitude of Jesus Christ in his person and work. But for these Hebrew Christians, this was a perspective that they did not know or understand, but it illustrated that same point, that Jesus Christ was our great high priest. He is a high priest vastly superior to the high priesthood of the order of Aaron, anything they knew under the Old Covenant. That he is, in fact, a high priest after a totally new order, that is, the order of Melchizedek. That's the subject that our author declared in chapter 5, verse 11, was difficult to explain to these Hebrew Christians. That was because of their dullness of hearing something that I'm very familiar with and any Bible teaching pastor would be familiar with in this day and time. That comment about their being dull of hearing led 
the writer on a strategic tangent in chapter 6. That tangent was aimed at getting their heads and hearts back into the spiritual game. So with a powerful combination of sobering warning and strong encouragement, both being essential components of a prophetic ministry to the people of God in any age, our writer admonishes these Hebrew Christians to wait patiently for the promised outcome of their Christian hope, and that would be an imitation of their father Abraham. Abraham never flinched in his hope, although he personally never lived to see all the fruition of what God had promised to his descendants. Now, right here, I'm going to make a digression before we come back to chapter 7 and its contents. I want to detour a minute to explain here, in case you have wondered, One reason why fewer and fewer pastors make any attempt these days at serious Bible teaching. I want to explain especially why a great many would avoid a Sunday exposition of a book like Hebrews. I understand it. That is for the very same reason our author confesses that he finds the subject challenging to explain to these Hebrew Christians. The dullness of his readers' hearing. Several years ago, one pastor told me he did not have the courage to attempt to teach Hebrews. He said he was afraid of what I call the donut look in the pews, glazed eyes. I understood his problem. Frankly, folks, the problem is as much in the pews as it is in the pulpit. These days, the majority of folk in the average congregation want I do mean want a dehydrated message. The fact is that the average congregation today has a spiritual appetite so blunted that they will hardly sit still for anything but skim milk in the form of the ABCs of the gospel. Or, much worse than that, the only thing they want is a diet of religiously tinged psychobabble. That just tells them how to get along with others and how to live with themselves. Or in some cases, pastors go another direction. They're just full of diatribes about the decay of America or such things. Occasionally, I come across on TV a young so-called tele-evangelist. However, he is no evangelist. The guy has an enormous congregation in another part of our country. I have never yet heard... Not even once from him, even the ABCs of the gospel, not once from his lips. Though this fellow makes a great profession of teaching the word of God. The only thing I've ever heard him do is instruct his people in living positively and spends all of his time telling them how to get along with themselves and others. Never once, never once have I heard him attempt to expound the great and central themes of the scriptures. Now, people accustomed to that kind of ministry, if one can stretch the term ministry to include what he does, such folk would absolutely choke and strangle on books like Romans and Hebrews. The result is a great many pastors out there are afraid of boring their congregations out of their minds, and they don't even attempt to teach the meteor truths of God's Word. Frankly, folks, that's what we've come to. Most of you listening to me are not of that stripe, because you know what's offered here on this program, and others like it. That's what you want, and I thank God for you. 
When we launched this program, I remember talking with a radio consultant. He actually told me that people today would not sit still for 27 minutes of straight-up Bible teaching. Fortunately, he's proved quite wrong. But that man knew what I know, that the average person in the contemporary pew and the average radio listener is more into music and light stuff than solid stuff. Part of the reason for that is that many are more preoccupied with what will make things better for us right here and right now. They are obsessed with the moment. Unfortunately, this world is where their treasure is. They are not all that attuned to knowing God, to learning about coming out of the world and walking with Christ and holiness and joyful anticipation of the world to come. They're just not there. Well, I must tell you, this book of Hebrews is not for people whose minds and hopes are anchored in the present. The message of this book is for folk who are looking for and eagerly awaiting a better world, a city without earthly foundations. This is a book for people who are looking for a salvation ready to be revealed from heaven, for people whose hope is in Christ Jesus. Now, that explanatory digression behind us, I return now to the thrust of Hebrews 7 and our author's logic. Our writer wants now to dig into this business about the relationship of Christ Jesus to the high priestly order of this rather obscure Old Testament person, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a personage that we meet with only briefly in the narratives, and they are concerning the life of the Hebrew patriarch Abraham. That's back in Genesis 14. But let me emphasize again that his interest in Melchizedek is to show that in every way this prophet, this king, this priest, Jesus Christ, is superior to anything the Jewish people had ever known. Do not turn your back on him. That's where this discussion is going. To set the table for this discussion of Melchizedek, I must re-explain for my listeners a couple of matters. The office of the high priest in Israel belonged by divine appointment to the family of Aaron, the brother of Moses, of the tribe of Levi. The divinely appointed role of the high priest in the religious system of Old Testament Judaism was to represent God's people as their mediator. Specifically, it was the office work of the high priest once a year to bring symbolic blood of atonement into the inner sanctum of the tabernacle, later, after the temple was built, called the temple, to bring it into that most holy place, the Holy of Holies, the place where there was the mercy seat and the venue most associated symbolically with God's holy presence. And there, with the blood of atonement in his hand, it was the high priest work to make intercession for God's people so that they might be accepted on the basis of the symbolic blood before God. Now, this ritual God ordained, this provisional atonement God accepted under the Old Covenant. It was only accepted looking forward to the sacrifice of Christ, for the blood of bulls and goats could never have removed sin. These animals were only types. They were only shadows, foreshadowings of the true sacrifice to be made later, and that was made by our Savior, Jesus Christ. These animal sacrifices, I reiterate, 
could in no way really take away sins. But insofar as these ceremonial customs were accepted by God provisionally in behalf of those who really trusted in him under that old covenant system, these folk were accepted on credit, as it were. That is, they were accepted in anticipation of the true atonement to be made later. That was when Christ came into the world and laid down his life as a satisfaction or a propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Now, the key thing to remember here as we work our way toward the text of Hebrews chapter 7 is that this Old Testament system of worship was type-intensive. By that I mean this. The high priesthood and the whole priestly system with its various sacrifices and even the tabernacle or the tent construction itself These were all just earthly patterns designed by God, passed on to Moses as shadows or foreshadowings of the heavenly substance. All the earthly cultists of the Jews were models. They were patterns of things heavenly. Now that our Lord Jesus Christ had come, these types, the Jewish people did not get this, these types were archaic. They were now obsolete. They were replaced by their antitype. The shadows, the types, had given away to the substance, the antitype. The patterns had given away to the real thing. That's what he's trying to get across. Now bear in mind that the ancient Jews gloried in their divinely revealed religious institutions, gloried in their temple, gloried in their sacred priesthood, headed by a high priestly descendant, of the family of Aaron, the brother of Moses, both of the tribe of Levi. The Hebrews could not imagine anyone with more religious prestige or cachet before the throne of God than their high priest after the order of Aaron. The Lord Jesus Christ was of the tribe of Judah, so there's no way our high priest, Jesus Christ, could be a high priest on earth. How could he be a high priest of our confession? Well, the writer of Hebrews is going to tell these Hebrew Christians, he can be because you missed something. The Old Testament speaks of another, vastly superior high priestly order. You didn't know that. That blew right by you. It's the order of Melchizedek. You remember him back in Genesis 14, who met Abraham when Abraham returned from a battle, and to him Abraham offered tithes. Do you remember Melchizedek? Well, God said that his Messiah was going to be after the order of Melchizedek, a high priest, forever. Well, since this was unfamiliar ground to most of them, but a highly significant truth, our author now in chapter 7 proceeds to develop this truth, to draw out its implications. And he shows as he goes that their traditional high priest, after the order of Aaron, does not stand anywhere near the same level of Jesus Christ. Don't overthrow Christ to go back to a high priest after the order of Aaron. If you retreat back to the old covenant, folks, if you retreat back to its institutions, as some of these were tempted to do, our writer is saying you're going to make a calamitous backward move. To track with our author in his discussion, which is designed to give these Hebrew Christians a firmer grip on the glory of the gospel, and designed to show how the Old Covenant Judaism had been superseded by a vastly superior reality, we needed to have that background. Well, chapter 7, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, blessed Abraham, to whom Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils. This Melchizedek was, first of all, just by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then King of Salem, which means Salem. Salim means a king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. Melchizedek abides a priest perpetually. And then he goes on in verse 4 just to draw a picture of just how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils when he returned from war. In verses 1 through 3, our author is showing us that the story of Melchizedek is a piece of what I call designer history. By that phrase, designer history, I mean this. Our sovereign God raised up this mysterious but godly individual named Melchizedek, whom we meet only briefly in Genesis 14. God so ordered in his divine providence the actions and the interactions of Melchizedek with Abraham, and God so superintended the recording of those events, including the silences in the record, that Melchizedek, the ancient priest who met Abraham, when Abraham returned from battle and received tithes from Abraham, Melchizedek serves by divine design as a type or pattern of the high priestly order of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there has always been a question whether some of the statements made here about this man, Melchizedek, Genesis 14, are to be taken as literally true, or are we to understand the record pertaining to Melchizedek as so superintended, let's say, edited by the Holy Spirit, that he is presented on paper, as it were, as a priestly figure, bearing many divine resemblances to the Son of God. And this would be for the purpose of anticipating and prefiguring Christ as a priest forever, without beginning, without end. In other words, in this figure, Melchizedek, we have a type or a pattern of an order of priesthood that is far greater than that of Aaron. For a long time, I was inclined to receive this latter view. In recent years, however, the language of the text has persuaded me, there is room for disagreement, but it has persuaded me that in Melchizedek we do indeed have an appearance of the pre-existent Christ. In other words, we have in Melchizedek what we call a theophany. A theophany is an appearance of God in some physical form. The one statement that gives me some pause is the expression in verse 3, that Melchizedek was one made like the Son of God. However, it's easier for me to explain that language in reference to an appearance of a theophany of the Son of God than to explain the other expressions relative to Melchizedek as one less than the Son of God. I refer to verse 3 in particular, and most especially the statement that, quote, Melchizedek abides a priest perpetually. He does not say Christ abides a priest perpetually, but Melchizedek. Also in verse 8, the case is strengthened, it seems to me. There, Melchizedek is contrasted with mortal men who receive tithes. Melchizedek is spoken of as one who lives on in perpetuity, is the idea. I find all that language hard to reconcile with the notion of a mere mortal who serves as a type of Christ by virtue of strategic omissions or silences in the text. I do not exclude the possibility of that interpretation, but 
I simply take that position because I find it much harder to explain the text on that premise, that Melchizedek is a mere type, than on the assumption that this mysterious figure who appears to Abraham was in fact a theophany of Christ. That is, Melchizedek in Genesis 14, I take it, was an appearance of the preexistent Christ, a theophany such as we have in mysterious appearances of angels, the mysterious appearance of the angel of the Lord in the Exodus and Wilderness narratives. Also, pre-existent appearances of Christ. Now, with that background in mind, we can better follow our author's logic as he attempts to impress upon these early Hebrew Christians. And this is what he's getting at, what I've got to have you see. The whole point here is to show these Hebrew Christians the vast superiority and the vast advantage they have in the priesthood of Jesus Christ versus what they had in Aaron and his descendants under the Old Covenant. That's what he's trying to show. And if they get it, they will see that clearly. So he says, here you have Aaron. That was all good. God appointed that. That was not wrong. That was the system of worship in the Old Testament. But he says, friends, here's something that you may have missed. You are fearful in Christ that you're giving up something really special and something really good and superior. Well, you're not. God's Word says that His Son, His Messiah, the one He was going to send into the world, was going to be a high priest. No, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a priesthood which continues forever. Melchizedek was a priest without end. And we're saying, you know what? Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, to go back would be retrograde. That's not the way you want to go. Now you have a high priest who is vastly superior, a great high priest. Not a high priest who is limited on earth. Not a high priest who has to go in and offer sacrifices for his own sins before he offers sacrifices for the people. No, no, no. You have a perfect high priest an eternal high priest, one without father, without mother, without genealogy, one who has neither beginning of days nor end of life. You have a high priest made like the Son of God. He abides a priest perpetually. Why wouldn't you want that? Please, don't make a huge mistake. Don't put your hand to the plow and look back. But for us, In our day and time, the larger point we must grasp is the absolute superiority of the magnitude of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can't go any higher. Our Savior could not be any more exalted. Nothing could be any more precious than to have him as our king, as our ultimate prophet, and as our priest. A great high priest who stands not on earth making ritual offerings, but a great high priest who is in his person also, the eternal sacrifice for our sins, standing in heaven itself before the Father, making intercession for us. This we need to understand. Well, he's going to go on here, starting with verse 4, and try to underscore for these Hebrew Christians just how great this Melchizedek was. Melchizedek is just mentioned back here, in this one little isolated passage, and that just kind of blew right by them. They didn't get it. He wasn't big on their radar. But sometimes there's more than we think in a passage like that, and he's about to show them. 
Yes, so let us observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. We'll come back to those details in our next study. Thank you, dear friends, for joining us on The Final Word. God bless you, and have a wonderful day. The Final Word is a listener-supported ministry. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about this program, please visit our website at thefinalwordradio.com. Our postal address is The Final Word, 4565 Carmen Drive, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97035. Our email address is info at thefinalwordradio.com. Our phone number is 503-699-9840. If this program has ministered to you, tell a friend about it. We do solicit your prayers for God's hand upon this outreach. Just be sure the work gets in their hands.